Hey folks, welcome to the Dark Horse Podcast. This is the sixth in a series of live streams with Dr. Heather Hine, sitting as always to my right. We have some interesting things to discuss with you today, and um, it is in some sense an unusual podcast. We will start with corrections, and then we will get to the part that is uh, in many ways much more personal. I should also add that we are working on technical aspects of the podcast, and so anyway, this is a painful process. We are discovering all sorts of uh, wrinkles that need to be ironed out of our system. Hopefully, we will have uh, fewer dropped frames today and better continuity with the sound. I will try to remember to speak into the microphone, which sometimes I don't do when I'm looking at my lovely wife. Uh, so if you have other observations that we ought to know about, please don't be shy about sharing them, and we will... Uh, attempt to refine this process as we go. All right. Um, as far as corrections go, we have uh, a few things to discuss. First, uh, I had a number of people tell me that we had it wrong with respect to whether or not urine is sanitary. And I would have to go back and look at exactly what we said. Sterile was the word that we used. Sterile. Ah, okay. So I think the problem here, there is a correction that needs to be made, which is that it certainly can't be considered sterile. There are, in fact, things that are transmitted in urine. They tend to be difficult to transmit that way, but they have been cultured by people who have looked for it. That is Obvi to say, there is bacterial load in urine, there is bacteria in the bladder. At some point, it was imagined that maybe there wasn't, but um, and, and there's more bacteria in the bladder and urine of people with current urinary tract infections, but there's always some bacteria in uh, even the healthiest urine. Um, the, the issue, though, comes down to one of extremophiles and evolution. So uh, while urine is not sterile, it does have some sanitizing properties by virtue of the high salt content. And it is not that things cannot adapt to the high salt content. Clearly, uh, urinary tract infections manage it. Um, but it is difficult to evolve those things. And to the extent that things evolve resistance to extreme environments, they have a difficult time with normal environments. So there's a trade-off there. And this explains why uh, it was the Maasai who utilize cow urine uh, to wash their hands. There is some sanitizing capacity there. So um, it's a partial correction in that case. And it's certainly more... Uh more useful as a sanitizer than any other bodily excretion I can think of. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, I mean, I mean, yes, you you could go gross with that, but you could also say, okay, spit, does spit work? No, right? And you know, anything blood, no, yep. feces, obviously not. Right. Okay. Good. Um, second, some folks challenged me. I I was asked what sort of uh, preparatory materials did I leave when we moved out of Olympia and to Portland? And I mentioned off the top of my head uh, compressed air and uh, the tools that go with it. And I had said that this could be useful in the event of a collapse scenario. And many people said, it's a terrible idea. It's too hard to generate the pressure. And to an extent, they're right. Um, and in fact, we have switched over to battery-powered tools, which uh, in many scenarios are just simply so far superior to air-powered tools if the power goes out that uh, it's no contest. But I would point out that there are many different collapse scenarios, and battery-powered tools are great if what you have is a short-term collapse scenario where things go back to normal after a few months, let's say. In the event that 
civilization actually came apart, um, your batteries would die, your tools would become useless, and there'd be no way to power them uh, alternatively. So it really depends on what scenario you're preparing for. And one of the difficult things for people who are interested in preparing for all sorts of unforeseen uh, outcomes is trying to figure out what the kit is that you want to assemble that covers you for the maximum number of scenarios. And so things that are belt driven and can therefore be driven by something like a bicycle are desirable from that perspective, even if they're not ideal from the perspective of actually the amount of work it takes to get power out of the tools. All right. Third thing has to do with smallpox blankets. And I said that the stories about smallpox bl blankets being delivered to natives of the New World were apocryphal. And indeed, they are when it comes to the conquistadors. There are a couple of credible instances where this took place on the American frontier, where it is more often invoked. Mm -hmm. It was apparently not a widespread practice. It's not that this was something uh, that accounted for the massive outbreak of smallpox across native populations. That was just simply the confrontation between this novel pathogen and a population that had no evolutionary preparedness for it. Um, but nonetheless, there are a couple of credible instances. It's well worth looking into. And the final correction that, oh. I've got a few. Oh, well, I have one more, mm -hmm. and then uh, whatever list you have. Mm -hmm. The final one has to do with the focus of the last live stream was on the question of whether or not hypoxia and depletion of uh, iron and porphyrin from hemoglobin was more uh, credibly the cause of the symptoms in the COVID-19 uh, than is uh, simple uh, viral pneumonia. And I don't have a correction here. I think what we said turns out to be uh, important. But what has emerged is a tension between doctors who are seeing different things. And um, we have doctors who are seeing um, the, uh, the failure of the blood to transport oxygen as a primary driving force. And there are other doctors who say, no, in fact, this really does look like pneumonia. And the piece of evidence that I heard marshaled against the, um, the hypoxia uh, argument or their primary hypoxia argument was that the dissolved oxygen in the plasma plasma is the blood absent the cells the plasma doesn't carry very much oxygen but it carries some and were it simply the failure of hemoglobin to be transporting oxygen you would expect the plasma oxygen levels to be normal and in fact they are not normal in the mm. case of some of the doctors who are arguing against the hypoxia as the uh, the driving force here. And the point is that is more consistent with oxygen failing to cross from the lungs into the bloodstream rather than the blood failing to carry oxygen. Yeah, that's, that's a great illustration of a prediction uh, that would appear to not necessarily falsify, but run counter to what it was that we were talking about. Right. Although yeah. the final thing I'll say about it is that these two things are not mutually exclusive right. and they're not mutually exclusive in two ways. One, it could be that COVID-19 causes both problems, mm -hmm. right? And so to decide that one is not the cause and the other is, is a mistake in either case. Which is, it's, it won't always be the case, of course, that you can have two hypotheses that aren't mutually exclusive. And uh, it is cleaner when we have ones that are such that when you falsify one, whichever one is left standing is the most likely to be true. But in this case, um, there's no reason to expect that there's a single mechanism of action. Right. In fact, um, what we have here is this is a classic for biological thinking because consider the 
the puzzle that COVID-19 or uh, the virus that's causing the syndrome is, is facing, it has to get into a body which requires it to invade human cells and then it has to spread cell to cell. But the particular site that it invades and the cells that it skips to have a lot to say about the symptomatology from the point of view of the patients and the doctors who are seeing them. So Mm -hmm. you shouldn't expect that this virus causes one set of symptoms. A lot is contingent on the exact path it took to get to the place where the doctor first sees the patient. So um, it is actually quite likely that different doctors are seeing different things. That could be the result of genetic variation between uh, strains of the virus. Or patients. Or patients, or, or both. Different developmental trajectories of the patients. Yeah. yeah. So this is, uh, this is the, the lesson of biology, is that uh, the temptation to, to simplify what you're seeing is obviously important, but it's very easy to take it too far in biology because complexity uh, is, you know, is present in every biological facet. Yeah. Okay, so the corrections that I had, you already covered one uh, about urine. Uh, it turns out that eggs do have salmonella inside of them because salmonella can actually, uh, is actually sometimes found in some cases in the ovaries of chickens. And so, yes, most of the salmonella is coming from the surfaces of eggs. Uh, and if you wash the surface of your egg just before you break it, you are much, more, much less likely to get salmonella. But um, it is sometimes inside of the egg from the beginning, which is news to me. To me as well. Uh, and then uh, the final one uh, was with regard to UV light and viral decay. You had raised um, the question in light of something I had said earlier about isn't sunlight a great disinfectant <clears throat> to something to that effect. And I had said, oh. Actually, it seems like it's UVC that's the best um, best route to uh, to decaying viruses and such. Uh, and it turns out I had just received a paper uh, that I had not yet read, uh, which called The Influence of Simulated Sunlight on the Inactivation of Influenza Virus and Aerosol. So this is about influenza virus, uh, which is not a coronavirus, um, but it is a virus. Uh, and, um, and it's a simulation, uh, but what, what they find is indeed uh, that the half-life of viruses, of the influenza virus in a dark room is something like half an hour, whereas in full intensity against simulated sunlight, uh, it's 2.4 minutes. 2.4 minutes. 2.4 so, minutes compared to a half an hour for the half-life, the, the basically the, the how long it takes for half of the virus to decay and become inactive and incapable of being active uh, in full sunlight. Well, then, I'm proud to say that the Dark Horse podcast is the first place that you will hear that simulated sunlight is the best disinfectant. <laughs> That's excellent, yeah. Um, so, and in- interestingly, this will be, um, you know, t- our topics today are going to be about death and also peer review. Um, and this is not related to, to the death topic, but um, this article, uh, which is in the Journal of Infectious Diseases, uh, is actually published in 2020, but it is not. It, is, it, it went through peer review you know, over the last probably year or two. So it just happens to have been published and, you know, in, the, in the log of publication uh, at, to, to emerge just as this, this global pandemic is hitting, which is just an accident. Most of most everything that we are hearing from scientific research right now about the SARS-CoV-2 and the disease it causes, COVID-19 pandemic, uh, are on preprint servers and um, have and, and are you know just coming out fast and furious. And it's up to us, you know, everyone basically, to assess uh, whether or not it's it's true or not. 
All right. We will return to that topic yes. when we get to uh, the question of peer review later on. Yeah. All right. How would you like to... Do you have something planned with respect to how we... Not, not exactly. I mean, I, I, have some, I have some things I want to say, but um, if, you, if you wanted to start, go for it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, how about I do that? Okay. So today is uh, a somber day for us. That is the anniversary of the death of Heather's father... Seven years seven ago. years ago. It's hard to believe it was seven years ago. Yeah. Um, and uh, Heather will say more about what took place and what it meant. But I will just say for my part that uh, Heather's father was an extremely unusual guy. His name was Doug. And he and I didn't get along perfectly at first. I think that's kind of normal with, uh, um, you know, fathers and their daughters and uh, their daughters uh, would be boyfriends and all. But ultimately, we came to be quite close. And I must say, uh, I still, in some sense, have not recon my, reconciled myself to his death. Um, he is somebody we comment on frequently. We, Given all that we've been through in the last few years, we've often wondered what he would make of it, and we really wished we had his perspective. He was a... Uh, Heather will tell you more about his his professional background, but he was a computer scientist who was regarded as a mentor by many, um, which was interesting. We, we discovered that in a sense after he was gone, when people told us what their relationships with him had been, but he was a, a man of very few words. He was an excellent teacher, but it was not primarily about him telling you uh, what to do. It was, he taught uh, through other ways, and one of them was by by illustrating. So we, we miss him a great deal, and uh, we are very much still grappling with with the loss. Yeah. So uh, a tremendous number of people are dying now in the U.S. Uh, from COVID-19, and it's possible that there are slightly fewer deaths from a few other sources um, because of the because of the lockdown, um, but. By by unfortunate happenstance, there are two other deaths that um, in in our world this week, um, and you know maybe we'll say an, a few words about at least one of those at the end of this. But knowing that this was coming, that we were due to do another live stream on the anniversary of my father's death, I was thinking about it in light of what it might tell us about what the deaths from COVID nineteen um, are doing to people and how particularly this disease, um, which uh, of course, my father knew nothing about um, having died seven years ago, is affecting people in ways that it's hard to quantify, um, but pretty easy to qualify if you start putting putting stories together. Did you say that the two deaths in our world were not COVID-19 yeah, related? Yeah, we, we so far have, have no one that we know directly. Um, you know, there's a couple of second order, you know, we know of some academics um, and, and, and such who have died from COVID-19, but the two people who we, uh, who died or experienced deaths this week um, had nothing to do with COVID-19. Um, so <clears throat> in 2012, uh, Brett and I were both teaching at Evergreen, and it was uh, an early spring morning, and for some reason I'd gotten up very, very early uh, and was building curriculum for the day. It was maybe the first week of, of spring quarter, and uh, the boys were asleep, and Brett was asleep, 
And my phone rang. And normally I wouldn't have been up at 6.10 or so. It was my mom. And uh, she said, your dad's having a heart attack. The paramedics are here. I don't know, I don't know what to do. Uh, they had, my parents had moved to Olympia uh, the year before, year and a half before, uh, to be near us, to be near us and their grandchildren. And I ran upstairs to get changed, and Brett woke up and said, we're waking the kids, we're taking them. And I said, no, don't, no, we don't need to. And you said, yeah, no, we, we need to take them over there. And you drove, um, you drive fast under normal conditions, but you drive as fast as I remember you, you driving um, to get to my parents' house. And there were three emergency vehicles in the driveway. Again, it's long before dawn at this point. Uh, and I said, Brett, stay in the car with the boys. I'm gonna, I'm gonna run in. And you wanted were, to see what I wanted to see what the situation we was. Into. Our kids were at that point almost nine and seven, and um, I just didn't want them walking in on a scene that was really gruesome. Uh, and I went to the door, and it was locked, which was strange, and I banged on it, and my mom opened the door, and there's my dad. Uh, my dad was a big guy, 6'2", and big. He was on the floor, and there were seven, eight, or nine first responders there, um, EMTs and firemen, working on him, and my mom was standing there with the, with the main guy, uh, and she came over to me and said, um, he says, your dad's gone. They've been working on him for 20 minutes and he's had no sign of life and he's gone. And I, I, I started crying. I hugged her and then there's a knock on the door and it's Brett with the boys. Who's, he's come with them. And the EMTs, we open the door and they see these two children in the doorway and I tell them, your grandfather's died. And they start crying. And the first responders keep working on my father, and they bring him back. They bring him back, which is just extraordinary. And it points to the connection that we have between us as human beings that sometimes is the difference between life and death. Now, he had been out he had been without a heartbeat for at least 20 minutes, and I have no idea how much longer than that it actually was, because it took some time for them to arrive after my mother called them, and she, of course, has no idea how long that actually was. Um, but they then got him to the hospital, and, um, and Western medicine just did wondrous things for him over the next seven weeks in the ICU. Seven weeks in the ICU, out of the ICU a few times, but mostly in. Uh, they put him into a cold coma. Um, they basically dropped his core temperature to, I don't even remember what it was. It was like 92 degrees, I, I want to say, but I, I don't remember. I didn't look it up. Um, the idea being based on just empirical results that people who die in, um, people who almost drown in cold water, tend to have better results cognitively later on than people who almost drown in warm water. That the slowing down of um, the slowing down of all biological and chemical processes basically stops damage as well, slows damage as well. So they put him into this cold coma and the amazing cardiologist whom we spoke with in the hospital that morning said, any outcome is possible. You may never interact with him again. And he may get up and walk away from this and be fine. And we really can't say. At least we can't make any predictions at all until um, we begin to pull him out of the medically induced cold coma in 24 hours or so. Um, he was 
I wouldn't say, just to you know, jump forward, not to tell the entire story here, but um, I wouldn't say he was 100% after he came out of the ICU seven weeks later, but he was really close. And he, you know, he went through um, bypass, open-heart bypass surgery. He was on a heart and lung machine. You know, this, this kind of medical intervention, which is extraordinary and saved my father's life a number of times during that spring of 2012, um, was, was remarkable. And So yeah. I must say, I was never sure whether the little bit that he didn't seem to come back was the fact that he was so shaken Mm-hmm. by what had happened to him yeah. and that, you know, you can imagine being in his shoes. You would always, every time you forgot something, you would wonder, was, was that some capacity I lost? So he, there was a way in which he was shaken. Yeah. I never saw anything that actually caused me to think up. Oh, yeah. He's definitely, definitely lost some capacity. Yeah. I, I agree. I think mostly, you know, he was a, oh boy, I don't know the lingo because I don't play bridge, but he was a, extraordinary bridge player who would, who was still um, playing in and I, I think winning some tournaments in that year after he had um, been in the ICU for seven weeks. Um, I, I had some questions for him about our taxes and I, you know, I, I worked on taxes with him and he seemed to be the usual, his, his usual intact self. Um, but now fast forward. So we all, my mother and and our boys and us got another year with him. And it was such a gift. And it was, in part anyway, given to us by not just those uh, amazing EMTs who continued working on him after they had said there was no hope, um, but also the remarkable medical intervention um, by the people at the hospital, by the doctors at the hospital at St. Pete's in Olympia. Um, But by the beginning of 2013 all the same issues that had been plaguing him before were coming back. He had um, long-term heart damage. He had, um, what is it, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, COPD, CPO, COPD. Um, he was overweight and he was a drinker. You know, he had, he had all of these, you know, he had all of these, I guess they're comorbidities, right? Uh, and um, he had always been someone, he grew up on a pig farm in Iowa in northeastern Iowa. He used to call himself a little country programmer. He went to Notre Dame, then went to Carnegie Tech before it was Carnegie Mellon, and uh, worked for a series of, of the big companies in computer science. He was translating. He basically, he, he translated, he spoke both hardware and software, and he worked as the interface, both between those two domain levels and between the people who often couldn't speak directly to one another. And um, through all of that, he had, you know, he had the farm boy in him. And part of that was, we eat from the land when we can, and uh, I, I, Douglas Hying, I'm not going to take drugs unless I have to. Um, but especially in that year after uh, he had been in the ICU for so many weeks, they just were stacking drug upon drug upon drug on him. And he didn't want it, but they, you know, it's hard to say no when you know that your life is hanging in the balance. So by, uh, by early April of 2013, it looked like he needed another another bypass surgery, another open heart surgery. And he was scheduled for one for April 12th of 2013. And I was supposed to be getting back from a field trip that I was leading with my class then. So I said, um, hey, dad, can I borrow your car? 
um, where I'm taking my class up to Arcas Island, the San Juan Islands, just gorgeous, gorgeous spot, Camp Moran, a place that we've ta- we'd taken a few field trips, a few classes. Um, but I'll come home a day early. I've got um, two amazing former students who are acting as my TAs, and they can wrap up the field trip on the final day, and I'll get the first ferry out of there on Friday and come home and be and be in the hospital with you on the and mom on the day of your surgery. But in talking with my mom on Monday and Tuesday of that field trip, I just had this sense that things were not going well. And so I left my field trip in the steady and capable hands of, gosh, I think it was Dallas and Corey, um, and, uh, and drove home early Wednesday, drove straight to the hospital, and he was there in his room with my mom, and he and I shared maybe eight minutes of conversation, during which time I told him I loved him, and he told me he loved me, and reminded me how much he loved the children, our children. He didn't mention you. <laughs> he loved you very much. Um, and then he seized, and I never saw him conscious again, but um, it was hours later I had time to call you and to say, bring him now, bring, bring the boys. You, you come and bring the boys now. He's back in the ICU. I think this is it. And the five of us, my mom, his wife, uh, and you and I, Brett, and our two children were around him as he, as he died and were able to be in the room, um, you know, terrible ICU room um, for an hour or so afterwards. And then we later, I don't know how many days later, accompanied his um, body to the crematorium. Uh, he had been Catholic in sort of a past life, but, uh, but he had no objection to, to that ending for him. Um, and in his ending, I thought, this is how no one wants to die ever. No one wants to die in the hospital. Americans don't know how to die. We've lost track of most of our, most of our ancient rituals. Every society that has been looked at, every culture that's been looked at has death rituals. And to the extent that individuals are still from cultures that do or have created some for their, themselves, our, um, our governmental and medical establishment has mostly kept us from those rituals under times of extreme duress. And he was luckier than most because he had five, they, they let the children into the ICU because it was the end, which normally they wouldn't have done. Uh, and so he had five people around him who loved him deeply. Uh, but people dying of COVID-19 generally don't have that at all. And that loss of contact between, um, between humans is so profound and so extreme and it must be so alienating and isolating and lonely and it feels like there must be something that we can do to make better deaths not just now in this in this time of global pandemic but across all deaths yeah it's really a a a difficult problem too because so many deaths now take place in the hospital and obviously at this moment if you can avoid being in the hospital, it's exactly the last place you want to be, just from the perspective of catching uh, this virus. So, yeah, w- 
you know, obviously it can't be the same priority level as figuring out how to treat people and prevent them from dying, but there are going to be deaths and, you know, even deaths from other things under these circumstances are just so compromised by the regulations around who can be where. Yeah. Um, I, but it, do, it does need to be addressed. I have a, um, an interesting list here of uh, ways that, um, ways that death is celebrated. Just it's from, it's from the introduction of this pretty good paper um, called Not Just Dead Meat, an evolutionary account of corpse treatment in mortuary rituals across 59, I think it is, cultures um, from 2017. Um, and um, just, just this list alone is worth, is worth considering. Even a cursory examination of the anthropological record reveals the many ways that people treat their dead prior to disposal. Corpses are washed, embalmed, anointed, pickled, dismantled, painted, adorned with jewelry, clothed, wrapped, placed in a container, moved, viewed extensively, touched, embraced, wept over, shouted at, danced over, and force-fed food, among other practices. I, and that's just, that just celebrates humanity right there, <laughs> that we have come up with so many, you know, but for every single one of us, some of those sound crazy. Yeah. And for someone on earth, whatever sounds crazy to, every, to the rest of us, it feels like the most natural thing in the world. Yeah, but everywhere there's something. Everywhere there's something. It's, everywhere there's something. It's a human universal. Birth and, rituals are almost ubiquitous. Death rituals seem to be ubiquitous. Yeah, and uh, our culture has done so much to turn them uh, generic and to sanitize the process and to turn it into a commodity. It's, it's frightening. Yeah. All right, is there more to say, uh, you think, on this topic? I think there, there may well be more, but... Uh, Maybe we maybe we stop okay. for now. Um, did you want to say? Was that thirty minutes? Thirty minutes. Okay. Um, yeah, maybe that's good. Okay. All right. So the other topic uh, is a. It's tempting to try to find a connection between death and peer review. Peer review is sometimes the death of good ideas. Yes, it's where good ideas go to die. Mm -hmm. um, but. Uh, in any case, I wanted to raise an issue with respect to peer review because of what I'm seeing unfold, which uh, is a very, very unusual circumstance. So for those of you who are not academics and have not been academics, there's a part of the world of how science and other disciplines unfold that y you can't see and you probably can't intuit, which is that well, there's this principle called the Matthew principle, which is something to the effect of to those with much, much is given. Um, the idea being a, a positive feedback loop where those who have lots of something end up with more and those who have little end up with less. This is found across our system. There are amplifiers that take uh, disparities and increase them. And one of the places that this happens is uh, in terms of um, academic access. So at a very high-powered university, you will have incredible access to what we call the literature, right? Your library will have a great many of those things available to you, and there's ways to access any that aren't present in your library. And you sort of come to think this is just the nature of the world. You've now joined a field. You have access to all the things that take place. And it turns out that as soon as you leave 
a major university, even if you step to a just somewhat less renowned place, you discover a spectacular decrease in what you have access to. And if you go to a college, you find that your access plummets. And if you leave academia altogether, you find yourself facing a paywall that's asking you to pay 35 bucks to glimpse a paper that you just need to look at a little bit to figure out whether some result makes sense. So anyway, there's a a problem with peer review that begins with the fact that it is a gate through which most people cannot pass. Hey folks, sorry about that. We had some kind of a momentary power failure that took out cameras, computer, everything associated with the podcast, and it took us a moment to get back. I've got a conspiracy hypothesis. Oh, is that right? Yeah. It was the editors at Nature what took us out. The editors <laughs> at Nature what took us out. I like that hypothesis, and I like the phrasing of it. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Well, we again, go. apologies. Um, I think what we will do is we will have this second part two stream also be the uh, Super Chat answer stream. We will just combine them. Oh, okay. Does that work? Sure. Good. All right. So let me just finish up what I was uh, getting at. The fact of the literature being available in proportion to the uh, prestige of your university is a hidden fact about um, about the way peer review works. But there is another set of facts that um, is equal. Sorry, there are things being done here to resurrect the stream. Our and, amazing technical support, Zachary, yes, who the, had nothing to do with the failures so far as we can duct tell. Duct tape and is, bailing wire. Is, is creeping uh, around. You can, you can come up here if you need to. I think we've got it. Okay. All right. So here's what I want to get at. I'll just cut to the chase so that we don't face another... Uh, set of problems. The COVID-19 situation is revealing something. It's actually a kind of test of something that we have been talking about, the dangers of peer review. Um, Eric, my brother, has been talking about the dangers of peer review on the Portal podcast, his podcast. Um, and the... Uh, um, the long and short of it is this. Peer review sounds like something that you need to have because, of course, work that doesn't withstand the review of peers isn't very high quality. But that does not mean that peers need to have veto power on whether your work ever sees the light of day because your peers, of course, may have a conflict of interest about whether or not they... Uh, um, want your work to see the light of day, or they may be so myopic that they can't see the wisdom in what you're saying, and therefore they will block it because they say it's low quality when really what it is is very far ahead of its time. Or you and a few of your dearest friends have formed a cabal, and you effectively peer review each other into lots of publications without saying anything about the quality of the work. That is very frequent. So why are we raising this now? We're raising it because the COVID-19 situation is producing an alternative, a view of an alternative way of doing science, which is to say, because COVID-19 is unfolding in real time, and because it is very important that we figure out how it works, how it's infecting people, what its vulnerabilities may be, how it is that we can behave so that we don't catch it, all of these things, this is unfolding outside of peer review. There's no time for the journals to send these papers out and have 
peers review the work and decide whether or not it should be published. There's no time to publish it on paper. So it's unfolding on these preprint servers. And what that means is that people are putting up papers. They're accessible to anybody with an internet connection. They vary a tremendous amount. They're not. The, I don't think any of the preprint servers are behind a paywall. Right. Yep. And so, you know, the preprint servers weren't really designed for this purpose. The preprint servers were designed, in effect, so that anybody could lodge an idea irrespective of where they were in peer review. And later on, you could see it. So immediate access was important and, um, uh, and such things. But uh, very often, they actually are limited in terms of who can use them. In other words, you have to be sort of a member in good standing uh, within a field or something like this. But that's all neither here nor there. The important point is that um, these papers are emerging in real time. Every day, there are new papers available that discuss the mechanisms at work with the virus, the symptomatology of the patients, the epidemiology, all of these things. They are accessible to anyone. Most of us do not know who these authors are. So these things are now being broadcast to something much larger than a field. They're being broadcast to anybody who has a scientific interest in understanding how this thing works. And it is effectively the proof that this does function, that um, the fact of no quality control on these things is not uh, creating a hazard, it's creating an opportunity that mm -hmm. we can now, you, the public, if you want to, can tune into the dialogue between, you know, let's say doctors who are seeing symptoms that are somewhat inconsistent with each other. You can tune in as the virologists are discussing the similarities of the receptor molecules in one virus versus another. And the fact that this works is tremendously important. And what I very much hope is that at the end of the uh, COVID-19 situation, that we do not simply decide that peer review has to be reestablished as the only way to maintain quality. What I hope is that we will recognize that we've discovered that, in fact, peer review is the abomination many of us think it is, and that um, it should be replaced by some sort of open source alternative. Yeah. So there's a, re there's a related... Um, thank you, Zach. Um, there's a related issue. I'm not actually sure. It might be interesting to figure out here with you live how exactly you think it interplays, but there's a related issue... Um, that you alluded to with regard to R1 universities, you know, the big research universities with, with a lot of funding, um, have the gold standard in terms of journal access. And if you're a faculty or a student at one of those universities, it's invisible to you. Once you know how to use the system, it just, it, it just slides right through. And, um, you know, in fact, this paper that I mentioned at the beginning of the first live stream, the influence of simulated sunlight on the inactivation of influenza virus and aerosols that came to us through Princeton. You know, it's it's so easy. We have we now for for right now have this this R1 university level access and all you have to do is ask. You have to you have to be able to find it, but then but then you just ask and it and it shows up for you. Um, so there's there's a maintaining of the status quo by virtue of the fact that if you're at one of these places, you have access to literature. And if you're not at one of these places, you don't have access, you don't know what you're missing. And it's very hard to jump into even knowing what it is that you're missing and therefore what to ask for. Um, so when we were at Evergreen, uh, which is you know a public liberal arts college and was 
was once capable of doing very high quality work um, at the both the faculty and the student level. Um, one of my soapboxes the entire time that we were there was trying to get access to um, mostly it was Web of Science, which is you know the Science Citation Index, which is this indexing database uh, that indexes so many journals you know across a wide array of fields. It's mostly natural sciences, um, natural and physical sciences, but and it's not a full text database. You can't from there get to um, get to all of the full text, but uh, by learning how to use its search function well, uh, you really can find, you can do the lit review, you can do the beginning of the lit review that everyone needs to be able to do, um, but it's very expensive, and Evergreen was never rich, and early in our tenure there, I was able to convince the then library dean to to buy it for the school, and I taught my students it every single quarter, and said, you know, this is, this is the access that you need. Um, and then it got cut a few years before we left, a few years before we did get cut. Um, and the argument made to me, you know, obviously, ultimately, it was a financial argument. It was expensive. Um, but the argument made to me by some of the people within library administration there was basically, as a researcher, as a scholar, as a faculty member, there are only a couple of journals that you are probably interested in looking at anyway. What the hell do you need all this really broad access for? And this, to me, is just an encapsulation of one of the things that is most wrong with, with higher ed now. And not, not just the educational end of it, but the research end. The idea that most people are doing research by being really, really familiar with a couple of journals, and maybe they also get the tables of contents for nature and science, uh, and one or two other pretty big journals in, in their inboxes, if, if they're scientists. Um, but otherwise, they just read a couple, and they don't need to, to look through, to draw on anything outside of their very narrow field. Well, of course we have a crisis in science and in replication, and in hypothesis testing, and in, you know, and in peer review, and everything. Of course we do, because we're training a bunch of people to do brick-in-the-wall science instead of big, potentially paradigm-shifting, hypothesis-driven science. We are forcing specialization at an absurd yeah. level. Exactly. Which is not only terrible for academics, but absolutely awful for students. It's terrible. Um, you, you, you should not be teaching your students to specialize at this level undergraduates need to understand how they need to understand the general underlying stuff before there's any argument for specialization. And so for them not to have broad access across the literature is, is just catastrophic. In terms it's, of it's frankly criminal. It, do, it, it doesn't look like an education. If you're going to be relying on the literature at all, if you're going to expect students to learn literature review skills, and maybe that's just not your thing at all, like, you know, it didn't tend to be your thing, right? But if you, like I, also want students to be able to really review the literature, they have to be able to review it broadly. They have to be able to assess the claims in, you know, across a number of domains, knowing that they will be expert to begin with in none of them, and they will never be expert in all of them. But that they can, they, they go in and they read it and they read it again. And at first, everyone's thought is, almost everyone's thought is, I can't understand this. I must be too dumb to understand it. I must not have the level of education required to understand it. And after a while, the best students begin to sense, you know what? Maybe this is written in a way such that I am not meant to understand it. There are, there are these barriers to entry put up at every single step to keep basically the riffraff 
out? Well, there are two things. You have terms of art, which are necessary in order to do the high quality work. Sure. And then you have jargon, which masquerade as terms of art mm. that are basically there just to keep people who aren't yeah. inside the club from knowing what's being said. Oh, that's an important distinction. Yeah, yeah. I think it is. Yeah. Okay. So, on to your Super Chat questions. Here we go. Oh, wait, you were going to tell a story. Oh, the story was the following. Your father... My father. ...who art in heaven... I, he's maybe. somewhere. Right. He's not here. Um, your father, the computer engineer, programmer extraordinaire, had a picture of himself sitting at a terminal debugging software with a toilet plunger... On the monitor. I have that in the in the WordPress site that I created for him after he died. Um, I have that picture. It's it's an excellent. Picture. It's a so marvelous it's picture. Yes, yeah. and it uh, it sort of reflected his uh, his approach to things like debugging. He was definitely a no nonsense, yeah. get it unplugged kind of guy. <laughs> That's right. All right. All right. First super chat, spot on. Thank you. Um, Nate says, a question about models specifically pertaining to non-regular, non-repeating events. Are they predictive or do they serve a different purpose? If predictive, how do they derive an ought, the future, from an is, the present? Is this an inductive versus deductive question? Is that what, what he's after? Maybe, maybe so. I mean, they're, they, models. They, they claim they're predictive, of course, but... Is it is it inductive versus deductive? I'm not sure. Here's what I would I wish say. Wish I knew which of these mics was picking us up. So. Yeah, I, I'm not yeah. sure. I'm not sure what the question means, but I have the sense that this is this is the answer you're looking for. Unfortunately, models are being abused. Yeah. They are taken to be reflective of the things that are being modeled, and in a complex system, it's very hard to get the model right enough, and it is very easy to fool yourself into thinking that you have the model right enough. So. What I would argue is that the philosophy of science, logically applied to models, suggests that models can be valid places to generate hypotheses, which then need to be tested against nature. They are not valid tests of hypotheses. I can't say no model ever has been. You mm -hmm. could obviously, in a very simple scenario, build a model in which you can test a hypothesis. But um, in a complex system, there are valid ways to generate hypotheses. You may be able to observe something in a model that you didn't expect, but you can't test things there. And that's, I think, what we're doing wrong. Good. Good. Uh, doo -doo -doo. Fellow biologist and academic here. What is your take on Dr. David Sinclair's information theory of aging, as well as his and Aubrey de Grey's approach to combat senescence and aging? Love you guys. Wonderful. Go for um, it. I sure hope the audio is on for this. I fixed it. Okay. Uh, out of the, the this recording from my laptop now it's coming out of that. Okay, great. All right. Um, David Sinclair's informational theory of aging. I believe now I'm not thoroughly versed in David Sinclair's uh, probably it's a hypothesis and not a theory. Um, what I would say is that in my paper on telomeres, I advanced what I believe to be the same hypothesis. I made an error, which is that I used a term which I now know would have been better replaced with another term. I said histological entropy, which many people took to be an analog for normal entropy. Um, what I should have said was epigenetic entropy. So what do you, I mean, I, I loved the phrase histological entropy, as you know, but what do you mean by it for, for those? What, I'm, what I mean by it is if you look at the way development unfolds, 
Cells know what to do. That is to say, they know which of their genes to transcribe based on two kinds of information, based on a history of what cells they came from, that is to say, their lineage, and information from things like neighbors that says where they are. As you get old, they lose track of these kinds of information because, A, they are no longer the next cell in the logical sequence from development. What they, many of them are is cells, are cells that have stepped in to replace a cell that was lost due to damage or wearing out. And so the amount of information about where a cell is is reduced um, based on basically in increasingly bad information. And that bad information compounds because to the, to the extent that one cell is confused, it's putting out a confusing message to all of its neighbors. And so what you get is informational breakdown of the natural order in cells, which perfectly reflects what you see under a microscope, which is um, from a young animal, tissues are very well organized. And the older the animal is, the more chaotic they become. And at the just at the gross phenotype level, an example that I think will will fit for people is, you know, as you age, hair starts showing up in places that it doesn't normally show up. Yep. Right. And not just, you know, during puberty, you get secondary sex characteristics and hair grows in your pits and your groin and such. But um, you get, you know, the the stereotype of the old man with the crazy eyebrows and the hair growing out of his ears. And I resent and that. <laughs> such um, is. I think, a realization of this histological entropy. Yep. Now, that was my original example, was a hair follicle out of place. And mm -hmm. I've heard David Sinclair. The reason I believe these so two just things to be, clear, to be... your paper predates Sinclair's or it comes after? Well, it's or possible that he wrote something much earlier, but I don't think so. Okay. I think mine is far earlier mm -hmm. um, and that uh, I wish I had called it epigenetic entropy. I think it would have been much clearer. Um, histological entropy is, I think, a very valid term, but it... Uh, it did lead some people to misunderstand what was being yeah. said. And what about DeGray? What about Aubrey? What about Aubrey DeGray? Um, Aubrey DeGray's perspective, uh, I'm basically just repeating what he has said, is that the failure of the human body due to senescence is effectively an engineering problem. And that if it is addressed as an engineering problem, it has a small number of causes. And that if we address those causes one by one, lo and behold, we will defeat aging. And uh, I agree with him that if you do defeat aging, that living uh, a thousand years becomes readily within shooting distance. Where we disagree is that the fact that it may technically be an engineering problem has anything to say about how tractable it is. And in fact, years ago, um, technology Review out of MIT ran a contest for any academic who could show that DeGray was not worth taking seriously. And I, I did not yet have my PhD. I don't think I was taken very seriously by the judges, but my point... But you oh, I did submit one. Yeah. And my point was, okay, so aging is an engineering problem. Um, here's another engineering problem. Taking a 1965 Ford Mustang and allowing it to trans people, transport people to the moon without ever taking it out of service, right? In other words, having a functional vehicle uh, every step along the way as you convert that Ford Mustang into, you know, an Apollo 11 or something like that. And the point is, yeah, that's an engineering problem. It's just not tractable. Yeah. So um, my basic opinion is that Aubrey de Grey um, has led us to a kind of false optimism about how tractable this problem is. 
Um, I also, in my response to him, took him to task for having essentially no uh, plan for addressing the informational breakdown of the mind. Um, that even if you were to solve all of the cellular aging and tissue aging problems of the body, you have another kind of problem, which is that the brain is not designed to function for a thousand years. So, you know, how much do you remember as a young person, if you're planning to live a thousand years, um, you may be so forgetful as a young person that it's not worth it. That's right. The algorithms that work for memory for an 80 to 100 year old lifespan will be very, very different. Yeah. If the primary treatment is ventilators, which are 20% effective, why do models show massive deaths in an overrun medical system? Shouldn't the increase be 20% at most? Can simpler care be performed at home? Could you do that one more time? Yeah. Um, I, th I, think that there's, I think that there's a couple logical leaps here that don't quite track. If the primary treatment is ventilators, parentheses, 20% effective, why do models show massive deaths in an overrun medical system? Shouldn't the increase be 20% at most? Can simpler care be performed at home? Ah. You, yeah, you get it? I feel like maybe there's just some words missing. Maybe it's not logical leaps, but I'm not quite tracking what the question is. Um, I mean, the primary treatment seems to be ventilators, which, as we talked about last time, um, may not be the right, um, the right tool to be using. Um, I don't know where this 20% effective number is coming from. Uh, I've heard, you know, in some countries, once you put on a ventilator, it seems like you got a 50-50 chance. Um, I've not heard 80% of people who go on ventilators end up dying, so I don't know what the measure of efficacy here would be. Um, and then, you know, ventilators versus overrun. You have something more here? I, I don't really. Okay. I, think, I think at some level the question comes down to if the failure of the system because it's overloaded is the cause of death, then we should be able to estimate the degree to which we have a higher residual than expected based on um, how many ventilators we can't find for people. Mm -hmm. But I don't quite get how, maybe I'm just misunderstanding the yeah, question. Yeah, no, and I guess there's another interpretation there that if, if the tool that you get in a hospital if the, if the major treatment is a ventilator and it's not very effective and you're, of course, more at risk in a hospital of getting other, uh, of having other problems, um, maybe there's a, a point at which even if you're really, really sick, um, the best move is to be at home rather than in a hospital. That, yep. that may be the question. And I think, you know, there is, there is something to be investigated there. Um, I'm going to just ask you to look at the chat, Zach, and every couple of minutes we're going to check in and say can you hear us okay because i have no sense of they can hear you and the audio is now much better okay, okay. great i'm just looking at jay i don't have anything else to do so. all right um please tell us about the handsome selectric 2 so I, we have no idea what you can see but i know generally i block it but i think i think it's there somebody can see well enough and knows enough to know that that must be a selectric 2 which yeah. indeed it is um yeah it has a little story that goes along with it um, you and I both, as kids, grew up in a house that happened to have... Two houses, even. Two separate houses, because otherwise oh. that'd be gross. Yeah. But um, two separate houses that had a selectric typewriter. And I remember thinking 
this was a very, I was a very mechanically inclined kid, and this was a super interesting device. Now, you never took apart your childhood home selectric, did oh, you? Oh, boy. <laughs> uh, my parents learned quickly that I had a tendency to take things apart, and as I recall it, I was more or less forbidden to touch this electric tube <laughs> because it was a very fancy typewriter, and um, uh, although I was good at putting things back together, I was expected not to be able to do it, maybe. Can I interject here and point out that you taught our younger son yesterday how to take apart a carburetor? Yes. So um, so you're still at it. I'm still and, at it. And you, you rebuilt it. Yeah. yeah. But actually, this device here, so we both grew up in homes that had a selectric typewriter, and I wanted, I wanted my kids to have a selectric typewriter that we could turn into a printer by... Um, basically triggering the switches in the keys. Basically, I wanted to hack into the typewriter and then trigger the individual letters to type by triggering the switches associated with each key. And we happened across this typewriter, which looked to be in great shape. I plugged it in at goodwill. Didn't really work. It came on, but it did not work. And it was 11 bucks. And I thought, 11 bucks, I'll buy it. I bet you I can fix that bad boy. And uh, <laughs> got it home and opened it up and discovered, A, wow, is that thing wild on the inside? And B, there ain't no switches. In fact, there are only two electric parts in the entire thing, and they literally are the motor and the switch. Everything else in there is um, mechanical and run. The motor is basically sending power through a belt into this whole system and everything else that happens in there is mechanical. So, so you could technically power that with a bicycle. You could totally power that with a bicycle. Yeah. And I probably should just despite those people <laughs> who were dubious of my, yeah. uh, my plan with the compressed air. Now, isn't there, didn't you also discover that there are like two or three selectric repairmen left in the country? Oh, it's more than that. It's a okay. small number and they're dwindling. I mean, those things, it's got to be one of the most complex, uh, it's not really a consumer object, it was a business object, but one of the most complex commodities yeah. uh, ever devised. The thing is amazing. And there were, there were repairmen whose job was to travel around and service those things in place on a regular schedule so right, these, but that was the, what, late 70s or right, 80s. Right, the point is most of those people are now dead. Yeah. Um, there are a small number of them still out there. Some of, some of them are refurbing these things, you know, and selling. You could buy them for, like I did, 11 bucks, and then you refurb it and you sell it for a few hundred or something. But anyway, it's a fantastically complicated object. And I sort of, at the point I realized how complex it was, I started figuring out how to fix it. And I'm still learning. It's... It's very difficult. Um, but anyway, I've got that one up and running. It works. The correction uh, works. It can actually lift letters off the page. Um, so anyway, that's the story. Excellent. In light of the disappearance of Dr. I. Fenn, who I probably am mispronouncing the name, in light of the disappearance of Dr. I. Fenn, who leaked the first report on the COVID virus, would it be advisable to protect future whistleblowers with something akin to diplomatic immunity? I think whistleblowers deserve diplomatic immunity, some kind of immunity. It's hard to know in advance, you know, how do you, how do you know that you are worthy of immunity before you get disappeared? Well, I would say if, and only if you want an honorable system, figure out how to protect whistleblowers. hundred percent. Um, and yeah. they, uh, a lot of people give lip service to the idea of protecting whistleblowers. Um, but it is absolutely essential. And I say that I feel like 
I feel like a whistleblower when it comes to uh, mouse telomeres. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's like, uh, unfortunately, it's the wrong metaphor. I tried to sound the alarm and the bell wouldn't ring, the whistle wouldn't blow, whatever it was. Yeah. It just didn't work. Yeah. Hypoxia hypothesis. Current and former smokers are showing up underrepresented in the ICU data. Would this suggest evidence for the hypothesis? Now, I feel like I saw something, and I don't have it in front of me, and this isn't my computer, this is yours, so I can't look at... Um, I thought I saw the opposite. I thought I saw that smoking was one of the risk factors, one of the top six risk factors. I just saw a list today where diabetes was the top risk factor, kidney disease was in there, COPD was in there. I thought smoking was, so I don't... Um, we could still take this on, but I would I would put a strong um, caveat on. I'm not sure that the claim is right. Um, hypo- with regard to the hypoxia hypothesis, current and former smokers are showing up underrepresented in the ICU data. That's the claim here. Would this suggest evidence for the hypoxia hypothesis? It almost feels to me like it should go the other way. Why would they be underrepresented in the ICU data? Is that suggesting yeah. that they are healthier because they've already faced a low oxygen like they're effectively acclimated yeah i don't quite see the connection so uh if you want a question like that address spell out a little bit more what you think the connection might be and also let us know where we can find the evidence that you're going on that the connection is there i don't know if there are um character um limits on the super chat but definitely a link to a reference uh, would help here uh, I tweeted y'all an account of a woman with strange symptoms who tested positive for COVID. I'll resend if needed, wondering your thoughts. I don't remember off, offhand which one this, which this, this was. This was strange symptoms who tested positive for mm-hmm. COVID. So, yeah, maybe a, do, do resend. Do resend. Um, I don't remember offhand what, what this is. I don't either, but I will just say that is certain to be a pattern. Because so many people who are infected with this virus are asymptomatic, and so many people mm-hmm. have symptoms for which no known cause exists, that surely you're going to end up testing some people, finding out they're positive, and you don't want to misattributing draw... perhaps symptoms they have that are unrelated yep. to COVID nineteen. Absolutely. So, yeah. Hawaii, H I Hawaii has implemented a curfew. Michigan is preventing the sale of non essential items. When is it too far? How do we respond once we determine it is? Yeah. This is um, a really I am wondering this very much lately. You know, the 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 part the node here that I'm tracking most acutely is preventing people from going into nature. And this misread, this like very not just authoritarian, but didactic, like we said stay at home. We said shelter in place. Yeah. That means you don't, what was it? There's a report out of Southern California, I think, Encinitas, actually, where we've got some friends um, who were in their, people were in their cars watching the sunset, alone in their cars or in their cars with the people whom they were already quarantining with watching the sunset. And they can receive either a $1,000 fine or six, up to six months in jail for not sheltering in place. They're in their cars watching the sunset. Yep. This is an incredible either just blatant abuse of power, or more likely a confused interpretation of a far too broad directive. So I would add, um, I don't believe you can make a society 
functional without discretion. Mm -hmm. And so in some sense, what we are seeing is a failure to either provide discretion or to utilize it properly. What you need is people who understand what the objective of the policy is and know how to make exceptions that don't violate the spirit of the policy. And so to the extent I, I don't remember where I encountered it, it might even be a friend got evicted from a public park. They were sitting on a bench alone, you know, 50 feet from the nearest person, and they were apparently told that they were in violation of the law. And the fact is, you know, we use the analogy sometimes that we are physically a robot, but that robot has a computer riding on its shoulder, and that computer is, it has needs. And so if we simply start figuring out what the, the robot needs to do in order not to catch this virus, and we stop paying attention to the fact that you're going to drive people stark raving mad if you lock them down and don't let them access those things that would make them feel some degree of normalcy and have almost no risk of catching or transmitting the disease. And give them no sense of legitimate hope or this thing ever ending. Yeah, then you know we're going to create a catastrophe. And also, next time this happens... We in the Northern Hemisphere might be heading into winter, not summer, yeah. right? We are in some sense uh, lucky that even if the virus doesn't respond to warmer weather, the fact that people, you know, many of them might have a courtyard they can go sit in or a tree they can sit under, that's very helpful. But um, we need to figure out how to do this humanely. And that means, you know, the question is apt. Yeah. When is it too much? No, it's, it's, it's quite apt. It seems like it is too much, uh, and but but part of how it's too much is the rote and robot-like receiving and dispensing of orders. So I'm reminded of you know we're not we're not going through these as quickly as I was hoping we would before. But um, I wonder if you would talk a little bit about um, this. At first, it's going to sound like it's coming out of out of nowhere, but your experience during Occupy when um, you insisted on engaging with the policeman who showed up to disband uh, the, the Occupy... Um, participants. Call it. Yeah, the, the participants who were, um, uh, who were at the Capitol campus in Olympia, Washington. Uh, and, you know, there were a number of our students who were up there um, with us. And then um, I think on a couple of occasions, the police showed up. And so I, I left with our children because it was important that if people were going to be arrested, no, you know, it didn't happen to both. But um, you talked to the police. Yeah, I thought it was very important that the police understand that they were facing human beings. Yeah. And, um, you know, there were some there were some bad cops. I remember them. There were some people who were clearly interested in exercising power. and uh, But there were also compassionate people. And that was most of what you interacted with. Yes. And the thing is, the... Um, Many of the people who were associated with Occupy had a strong anarchist bent. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm quite anti-anarchist. But the anarchists have this sense that all cops are bastards and all of this stuff. And what that resulted in was not engaging the cops as if they were human, treating them as if they are not human, which resulted in the cops feeling like they were dealing with non-humans on the other side. And it was a, you know, it was just a catastrophe waiting to happen. And so, they thought you were being a patsy for wanting to engage, right? So the idea... You know, some some of the the anti-occupy people would say you're being ridiculous for engaging with the occupy people yep. at all, and the people with an occupy were saying how how 
not only how foolish of you, but how dare you interact with the cops. And you, know, you had good human interactions with the policemen who, sh- had been, who had been sent to disband a group and with whom you had human interactions. Yep. And I'm, I'm waiting for those stories here yep. now, and I don't, I don't see them yet. Um, there is so much contradictory information being given to us. Wear a mask. Masks won't make any difference. Stay home. Go out and get sun, etc. How do we sift through what will prevent the spread of COVID-19? Well, part of why we're doing what we're doing is so that you will hear how people who have a background in biology and have a lot of experience, you know, teaching students are parsing these questions themselves. And, you know, if you optimize for zero likelihood of spread, you will end up in a completely paralyzed universe, right? In fact, you'll starve because you won't be able to go out and get food. And at some point your supplies will dwindle. And you'll be psychologically destroyed. You'll be psychologically destroyed along the way. So in essence, what I really, I hesitate to say this because I don't want somebody to get sick because somebody else makes a bad call. But in essence, what you need is to understand as much as possible about how the virus functions, both in terms of how it invades a person, how it spreads from person to person, um, and how it spreads across a population. And then you need to figure out how to compile a package of responses that uh, reduces the likelihood of transmission as much as possible. And you know, to those of you who say, no, that's not good enough, it's gotta be zero. Look, every time Amazon delivers you something, it's a trade-off. You didn't go out to get it. That's good. On the other hand, it could come through your door on the package. And so knowing that it could come through the door on the package means you can minimize that chance by dealing with the packages if it's not safe. But basically what you need is a model. Model's not going to be perfect, but you need a good enough model that you can then extrapolate and make decisions that are safe enough. And it will never be perfect because the information, what we believe to be true now, not all of that is going to end up being true. Yep. Uh, and this, this, will always be, this will always be a more true statement with something that is evolving as rapidly as not just this virus, but specifically our relationship with it. Brett, I don't understand. I can't see the rest of this question. Um, Brett, I don't understand how traditional evolution, small random mutations, can explain the Cambrian explosion. Is it related to the explorer mode you previously talked about? Please explain in such a way that a software developer understands it. Um, Yeah. So I've taken a lot of flack from some fairly prominent people over explorer modes, which I find funny. Um, I can't say what the particulars are, but my basic point is I don't believe that random mutation on its own results in the kind of diversity that we have. I believe random mutation and selection built an earlier world in which selection then figured out how to explore more efficiently. And that exploring more efficiently is still a Darwinian process. It's just not so haphazard. And so when we see something like the Cambrian explosion, we may not know what innovation it was that set loose this um, tremendous diversity. But the question is, look, Random mutation might not get you there, but random mutation building a mechanism, you know, it's like... Well, you got three things all working together and sort of 
leapfrogging over one another, but not necessarily in a particular order. I mean, there's, there's of course, more. The mechanisms of microevolution include other things, but the three things you just mentioned are random mutation, selection, and exploration. And exploration doesn't, does not show up in the usual list of mechanisms of microevolution. Yeah. It's not we, gene flow. It's not drift. Um, we've overly fallen in love with the random part of the story when yeah. it was never the important part of the story. Right. But, you know, I, I would say the question is a little bit analogous to, um, a, you know, a colony of cells. How does it navigate around the room? Right? Are you telling me that colony of cells, you know, well, I'm a colony of cells. How did I know where the glass of water was? Well, it happens that some of those cells are organized into a pattern that allows me to detect the precise location of the glass. And, you know, is it amazing? You better believe it's amazing. But is it inexplicable? No, it's totally explicable. So um, so anyway, it's that kind of thing. Yes, selection has figured out a bunch of tricks to make its exploration of design space more efficient. Hello, Brett and Heather. I'm a current Masters of Public Health candidate, and COVID-19 has now overtaken, as it should, our daily discussions in class. Stay safe and healthy. Thank you. As the global supply chain responds, we'll likely see 3D printers decrease the cost of acquiring guns, disrupting societies that don't have pervasive gun ownership. Might the Second Amendment be a mimetic exaptation of a sort? That's the Steel Man podcast question for the day. Mimetic I, I, thought I, I thought I understood the question until, until the, the last end. Bit, yeah. Um, a mimetic exaptation. Except, so exaptation are things that happened for one reason and are evolutionarily co-opted for something else. Which this if you is think, a, a Gouldianism to distinguish between adaptation and exaptation. Yes, and probably every adaptation that we can name could technically be argued to be a stack of exaptations or something. But right. um, So the question is about gun ownership. And the fact that 3D printers will make... Uh, Decrease the cost of acquiring guns, potentially. I, th I think that that is possible now, although um, societies that don't have pervasive gun ownership, but that do have the materials and printers to be printing 3D printing guns at home, what, is that going to be Europe mostly? Jeez. I don't know. I mean, it's, it, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of ifs yep. here. Um, and neither you nor I can make total sense of mimetic acceptation. Yeah. I mean, I, I get what the words would mean together. I don't get how they apply here. Yeah. I will say, um, for better or worse, 3D printers uh, make the question of how to make a gun relatively trivial. On the other hand, you know, the same thing is true for a metal lathe and a mill, right? And we can't very well limit people's access to the... Stuff. It's, tough. it's tougher, though. You need, you need more know-how with a metal lathe and a mill to construct a firearm, don't you? Yeah. Because basically... Well, let's put it this I, way. I, you know, the blueprints, the recipes, whatever you call them, exist. You, know, you, get, you get the 3D printer, you get the recipe, you get the materials. And yeah, you, you don't really need to know anything to tell your 3D printer to do it. On the other hand, you need to know somewhat more to get a CNC machine to make the parts. But it, uh, however you get there, we're headed to the same place, which is... Um, a gun just isn't that complicated. And so um, how much know-how do you need to make one? Not nearly as much as you'd think. It's, you know, it's just a question of really whether you're, as long as they're cheap, it doesn't happen that often. Um, if they become illegal, I imagine it will happen more. Yep. Chomsky claims 99% of language use is internal. 
Hence, its characteristic use indicates that its primary function is for thought and not to facilitate communication. Do biologists gen- generally accept this view? I don't. I don't. I don't know what biologists generally think, but um, yeah, I don't. You don't. I'd say I'd say the opposite is true, which yeah. is that um, it is, I believe, clear that language has evolved for communication between individuals. But once you communicate between individuals efficiently with a language, it becomes a very uh, useful shorthand internal to the mind. Yeah. Um, stay tuned because we will cover the question of consciousness yeah. and it is wrapped up in this very set of issues. Yep. Yeah. No, in the whole, the penultimate chapter in our book on the distinctions between culture and consciousness. Yep. Yeah. Where was I? Does nature act as a system or are individual organisms simply looking out for themselves? In other words, are viruses or diseases a response of the system to the overpopulation of a certain species? Nature does not act as a system in that way. There is no, the Gaia hypothesis is not right. There is no, you know, forests don't evolve in the same way that individual um, trees and tree species do. Yep. Um, Yeah. um, Amazing things are possible. Mutualism is real and there's no upper limit to how uh, many creatures could participate in one, but there is a practical limit on how far that goes. So I would say emergent phenomena are real. It is not right to say that forests don't exist, but it is right to say that they do not evolve, right? They do not have the prerequisites to evolve. So um, really what you have is a virus taking advantage of the kind of uh, closeness that occurs at high population density. It's not that um, it is a integral participant in some agreement to thin the population or something like that. It succeeds more at con- in conditions for which it does the most harm yeah. at the moment. Um, but that is not it being sent to do the most harm. How does sickle cell and gene variants possibly relate to the reasons why this disease affects African-American communities the most? Well, it would seem to me that it's relatively simple to test whether or not the disproportionate effect in African-American communities is sickle cell related. In other words, if we control for those people who carry the sickle cell trait into adulthood, do we still see disproportionate effects? My guess is you would. it's not clear to me from this question if he is referring to our conversation last time or if this is coming de novo. Yeah. Um, but it's, you know, it's certainly possible and would be relatively easy yeah. to test. But let's just say it is possible that sickle cell, which reduces the capacity of the blood to carry oxygen, puts people who carry the trait as a heterozygote, that is to say they have one copy of the sickle cell gene and one copy of the normal gene, um, it would put them at disproportionate risk, which might result in more extreme cases. Um, it, oh, is also, written. Sorry. it is also possible that uh, economic factors or demographic factors are the reason for the connection, and it has nothing to do with sickle cell. This does raise another um, correction of sorts. In talking about sickle cell anemia last time, uh, I had suggested that if you're heterozygous, um, you seem to do fine, but you probably aren't going to be an elite athlete. And a few people pointed out, is it David Goggins, I think, who is maybe a former Marine and an elite athlete and is also heterozygous for sickle cell. Really? So there will be, you know, there will be exceptions, but that's extraordinary. That is extraordinary. Yeah. I hope I've gotten the name right. 
I wasn't aware of him before this. Let's entertain, oh boy, let's entertain the conspiracy of COVID being caused by 5G. If in fact your theory is correct, could 5G possibly interfere with hemoglobin because the iron is some kind of cellular antenna? I'm going to let um, you take this one. <laughs> you're going to let me take that one. Well, thank uh, you. You're welcome. Um, I would say I am not a fan of the idea of 5G for so many different reasons. I don't think we need it. Um, and I don't think uh, doing high energy stuff in such close proximity to people is, is a good idea. Um, I have no idea. I've, I've heard these connections too. I haven't yet seen anything that compels me. It's worth going down that road. I'm open to the possibility that there's some evidence that I need to see. Um, but anyway, yes, it is unprecedented in many ways, or it's not 5G. 5G is unprecedented. And so could it have effects that we have yet to discover? Of course. Yep. And, you know, we got two unprecedented things uh, coming together at more or less the same time. So, of course, they've been put together causally. Um, But, you know, it could... That doesn't mean... I want to see the the evidence that makes it worth my time to chase this particular connection. Yep. Many species go extinct due to rainforest destruction for animal agriculture. Isn't it smarter to let pigs, cows, and chicken go extinct to save more species? Uh, you, you want me to do that? Sure. Okay. First of all, uh, farming where tropical rainforests once stood is never a good idea. It doesn't work very effectively because the very nature of tropical rainforests is that they sit on top of soils, which some will claim are paradoxically depleted. Um, I don't think it's paradoxical at all. Uh, this is one of the things I addressed in my dissertation, but, um, the fact is there are places that you can raise animals and do it properly. I am no fan of factory farming. I think it's despicable and, um, it cannot be morally justified, but that does not require us not growing animals on fragile, uh, thin tropical soils and not growing animals in an inhumane uh, way on a feedlot or at a high density in a cage or whatever, that does not force us to go all the way to driving them extinct. We could eat a lot less meat and not eat zero. That would address many of the health problems that arise when people go to zero with respect to meat. And it can be done in a way that doesn't involve a moral compromise. So yeah, I don't want to see rainforests cleared to, to raise these animals, but it's never been a good idea in the first place. Let's just put a tiny bit more nuance on that too and say, um, it's not all tropical soils that are poor, right? Um, you know, the tropics being that part of the earth between 23.5 degrees north and 23.5 degrees south, it's this huge swath of the earth. It's specifically the lowland, um, usually previously alluvial soils that are high clay that tend to now have rainforests on them or those rainforests have recently, which is to say sort of since the Industrial Revolution, been cut. Um, but there are plenty of areas in the tropics that have rich soils, you know, anything that's volcanic, you know, the entire Andes and, um, and the Cordillera through Central America, for instance, have higher quality soils that can withstand both um, plant farming and animal agriculture uh, without destroying the soils inherently. Mm-hmm. Okay, regarding your concept of metaphorical truth, why use the word truth when useful or advantageous would do? Why create different kinds of truth? Well, the, uh, I think the long and short of it is lots of people seem to have preferences for how 
we describe things so that we don't tread on their particular sacred belief. And I do think that while what I call metaphorical truth is not true in the same way that scientific truth, literal truth, uh, laboratory truth is true, that when something is true enough to be the difference between life and death, that it is it is actually unfair not to use the word. So my uh, go-to example would be the Moken uh, people of the Andaman Sea who survived the tsunami, uh, the Boxing Day tsunami, as a result of a, a myth told around the campfire about something called the Lavoon that seeks to taste human flesh. And anyway, it was a perfect warning for the tsunami. And my point is, as far as we know, no Moken people died from the tsunami, right? That's an incredible track record given how closely associated with the exact epicenter of this uh of the earthquake that caused the tsunami that they were. So this myth was so good that it saved hundreds, maybe thousands of Moken lives. Who are we to say it's not true in some sense? I'm not claiming it's literally true, but it is true enough to save lives. And it's paired, right? It's, it's this, it's this four word phrase that is, that is two terms in it, literally false, metaphorically true. And it, it allows people to go into myth and say, okay, no one outside of the Mokan people believe in the Lafoon? Is that what it's, it's called? It's Lafoon. Um, and yet you can objectively observe the survival rates of the Mokan compared with other people the same distance from the epicenter of the Boxing Day tsunami uh, and say, well, something in that belief was so effective that it saved all of their lives. Is the story of the particular god that got angry um, true? Those of us with the scientific sort of post-enlightenment uh, worldview would say no, but it created such the right behavior that is literally false, metaphorically true. It's the pairing that is important. I agree it's the pairing. I know we need to move on, but I want to say one other yeah. thing, which is I am fond of the idea that for most of us, leveling up tends to come in the form of a vindication that is tied to a bitter pill. And my feeling about the pairing, as you put it, between literally false and metaphorically true is that if you find yourself on one side of this divide or the other, it's those two things. You get a vindication and a bitter pill, right? Metaphorically true is a vindication for people who have these metaphorical beliefs and want them treated respectfully. But it comes right after the phrase where they're told, no, that's literally false. It's literally false, metaphorically true. And until you deal with the package, you're, um, you're taking license that you're not entitled to because both things are, are true. Good. Keep up the good work. Thank you. Thank you. Please come to Pittsburgh and have coffee with me. I'd love to sit down with you both. I hear that Pittsburgh is gorgeous. So... I point. hear we'll get to Pittsburgh. My father was in grad school in Pittsburgh many, many years ago. Yep. Yeah. Pittsburgh is now not a place we can go because there are people there and social distancing requires that we. <laughs> it's true. <clears throat> Yo, Matthew Principal Blues, love the discourse, love from Scotland. Look here, Brett. Please discuss the potential connective strand of meaning between your latent programming versus Jordan Peterson's Jungian shadow. <laughs> Um, that was like poetic word salad. Yeah. Well. Yeah. I, I can't. <laughs> at the very end, it 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 got it got less 
Yeah. What are the two things that uh, your your latent programming? Which yeah. is not a phrase exactly that, that you use. I don't think he's talking about mine. I think he's talking about our latent programming, right? Discuss the potential connective strand of meaning between your latent programming versus JP's Jungian shadow. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me obvious that your latent programming would contain um, all sorts of things relevant to many phenomena, many historical circumstances, and that the Jungian shadow is Jung's attempt to systematize these things, or it's part of his attempt. So it seems to me like the connection is... um, rather dependent on whether Jung had that right. I see Jung no... is mapping the programming at some level. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, I, I don't see anything... Doesn't doesn't bother me that the two would be connected. All right. Stream is frozen. Yes. Okay. Um, keep up the great work. Would you talk about Jeffrey Epstein? Epstein? Did I say that right? Yeah. Uh, and the new episode from Eric's podcast. I think Eric put something new up today. He did? Yeah, I think. Episode uh-huh. 25. Don't know about it. Yep. Would you talk about Jeffrey Epstein? I don't have anything to say about Jeffrey Epstein. Um, well, I uh, I have said previously that the Jeffrey Epstein story did not kill itself. Um, <laughs> I felt very clever when I came up with that. Apparently you still do. <laughs> Apparently I still do. Yes. Um, yeah. Uh, I don't know exactly what to say. It yeah. does seem like there are an awful lot of questions that uh, would reasonably be answered. And as Eric routinely points out, the failure of journalism to be pursuing questions that seem to be on a great many minds uh, is conspicuous, if nothing else. Um, So anyway, yes, there are lots of questions. uh, And the strata to which Epstein was connected does raise all sorts of um, possibilities. Both the depth and the breadth of his connections. Yeah, and the nature of them. Yes. Please, can you discuss invasive species? Is this a real thing? Is there debate here? Aren't conservationists simply picking a point in time and saying, we like this best, let's keep it this way, thanks. Oh my God. There's so much here. Um, so this, this is many, many hours of conversation. Um, let me try first, just I'm gonna go backwards through the questions. Aren't conservationists simply picking a point in time and saying, we like this best, let's keep it this way? There is some of that for sure, right? There is sort of a moment of, um, this is when we, the ecologists, started paying attention, and we've declared that the moment in time that we're going to try to preserve. Uh, and it, uh, it forgets that environments change and that evolution happens, and it's a pretty naive view of nature. Um, that said, invasive species are real, and um, when it is humans with our modern technology who are moving things around the world, either intentionally or not, and bringing them into environments where they have no native competitors or pathogens or predators, allowing them to take off and become monocultures to the benefit of nothing but those species, there's a problem, and you've, you, you've rendered ecosystems unhealthy. Um, yeah, this is another thing I covered in, in my dissertation. We have a problem that is very serious with what are called invasive species. One has to be careful not to declare anything that shows up in some place where it didn't exist before invasive, because that's not what they are. There are ornamentals, there are non-native species, but invasive... Well, and you've got a predictive paradigm as to which which ornamentals, for instance, are likely to escape from their ornamental status and become invasive versus stay in a garden and be just fine. Yeah. Yeah. And I would also say that in traveling the world, the, the devastation 
of habitats that comes from invasive species is absolutely jaw-dropping. Um, my least favorite creatures on Earth are probably uh, trees in the eucalyptus family because they have absolutely devastated habitats in California, in fact, along the whole west coast of the U.S. Mm -hmm. The Andes are utterly transformed by them, where eucalyptus is everywhere and the native trees that were uh, there are found mostly in, in places where they've been cultivated. It's so destructive. Yeah. So, well, just to be clear, eucalyptus is native to Australia. It, doesn't, yeah. it, do, it didn't start out in the New World at all. It was humans who brought it to the New World, and um, it spread so fast. It spreads. So it is simply a superior competitor. And the, I think the answer you're looking for, whether you want to hear it or not, is that the problem is there's a trade-off between competitive ability and dispersal ability. And so the limits of where things are found are very often structured by that. Very ferocious competitors are often limited in where they can get. And so when we transport something like eucalyptus, what we are effectively doing is saying, let every habitat be dominated by the same critters. And what that means is an overall loss in the diversity of critters around. And I don't want to live in a less diverse world for lots of reasons. Having everything to do with human utility and well-being I want to live in a highly diverse world. And so if I want to live in a highly diverse world, um, invasive species are among the greatest threats because once unleashed, it's almost impossible to do anything about them. If they're really good competitors like eucalyptus, then you know a single error where they get released is out of control almost instantly. Yep. <clears throat> how, does, how does fungi reprogram ant brains? It's fun. It's a good question. I don't. I don't know how it does it. Um, I don't think anybody does. Yeah. But what I can say is that the real question is how do ant brains work, and the that itself is. I mean, so they they have, don't they, a bunch of ganglia? So they yeah. don't have a centralized brain. They have, I think, I think well, they have a. Well, at the very least, they don't have something that we would all agree is a brain. But they do have neurological processing that results in coordinated behavior. And in order to understand how a fungus intervenes to get a creature to behave in this way, um, you probably have to realize what heuristics are running about inside an ant's head, which I don't think we know. Yeah. Um, but lots of, you know, to the extent that rabies causes, you know, anger in, a, in an infected dog that causes the dog to behave in a way that spreads the rabies, it's the same kind of uh, process. But Maybe it's easier to understand in a dog how you would trigger anger because lots of things, confusion. Because we uh, know that mammals experience these kinds of emotions because we're mammals. Yeah. So it's harder, it's harder to understand what seems like a complex behavioral response in an organism that we don't think of as having individually complex behavior. Yeah. Two and a half hours, or two hours. All right. Uh, please, can you discuss, sorry, I switched it out. Please, can you, oh, same question. No? Okay. The invasive species question again. I think we did it. Did you see the videos regarding Philly Metro personnel and security aggressively kicking people off for failure to wear masks? Oh, this is from Jadis. I apologize if I'm mispronouncing your name. Um, someone we know on Twitter. Um, didn't. I didn't see these videos. I didn't either. Um, yeah. 
I don't, I don't well, know. I, I don't know what to say. I didn't see yeah. the video, so I don't know whether it would be obviously beyond the pale or, uh, right. you know, justified. But I can say I have watched a radical transformation in how what percentage of people are wearing some kind of mask. Mm-hmm. And I regard that as, on the one hand, very good news. People are taking this seriously. And on the other hand, how many people are going to die because other people were afraid to stand out, right? In other words, if you weren't wearing a mask because other people weren't wearing masks and you'd feel dumb wearing a mask or somebody hadn't given you the kind of license you would need to innovate some kind of a mask, then other people were put at risk. And so uh, what I hope is that next time we will remember that we all ended up wearing the masks and we will be able to jump to it and, you know, a lot of lives could be saved. Yeah. Uh the biggest expert, the biggest expert in a research area usually has the most motivation to dishonestly kill work that is disruptive. True. How is it that this obvious conflict of interest is overlooked when a paper is assigned reviewers? <laughs> yeah. Well, let's just be clear. Um, assigned reviewers is already the problem. The idea that the field has the right to kill off concepts because they're not high quality doesn't make any sense. It made sense maybe in a world where ink and paper were limited and you had to figure out on what to spend them. But we are now talking about pixels. Pixels are not expensive. If you want to put out an idea that everybody thinks is stupid, well, let's let you put it out. And if you turn out to be right 100 years from now, we can come back to it and we can say, well, we got that wrong. So where's the harm in it? So let's just do the process of reviewing other people's work in public, where the people who turn out to be right, especially people who turn out to be right and way ahead of their time, are ultimately vindicated, and the people who we thought were experts who turn out to be wrong again and again and again uh, stop being listened to. So there are going to be one piece of pushback there is going to be, you know, everyone complains about reviewer two, right? <laughs> three, three papers, three reviewers, and it's always reviewer two who comes up with the most ridiculous um, arguments against the paper. Um, but in general, what those three reviewers, peer reviewers on any paper are supposed to be doing is looking at different aspects of the paper. So, for it, so if this is all to happen in public, uh, very few people have equal facility in, say, assessing whether or not the theor- theoretical framework for a paper makes sense, and this is actually building on the thing that the authors are claiming, and whether or not the experimental design and the prediction and the hypothesis that is being tested uh, is actually being tested with this experimental design, whether or not the predictions inherently follow from the hypothesis. So that's a second realm. Data analysis is a hugely technical realm, and most of the people who can do that really well are statisticians who don't necessarily have the chops to do the hypothesis assessment and experimental design assessment. Um, And I would say uh, you don't... it, It is useful to feel, to know that someone with the chops that you don't have has looked at a paper and said, yeah, that passes muster over in my end of things, especially now with the ridiculously complicated statistics that people are using often to cover their tracks, but sometimes because the data really are uh, really do call for complicated statistics. Yes, but again, and I, I really want to emphasize, if you have 
some kind of scientific background, whether it's formal or not. You just have an interest and you've spent some time thinking about it. Check out what's going on with the papers that are emerging every day on COVID-19 and the lectures that are being delivered on YouTube by one professional to others. Mm-hmm. We are... This is happening in real time, and it's happening the way actual progress happens, which is to say people are disagreeing with each other Mm -hmm. in public. They're taking a stand. I believe that this disease is progressing this way because of these things that I've observed. No, I've observed these other things. And the point is, Mm -hmm. when it plays out in public like that, A, it has a much higher tendency to be honorable, where you're playing with your own reputation, and you're saying, no. I think it's this way because of this thing. Well, that's a risky position to take. So anyway, I guess once you start doing this in private and you have reasons to, you know, you're you're engaged in quality control, Mm -hmm. I think it's very hard to rescue that system. And the reviewers are anonymous. Right. So anyway, let's just do this in in the open. Uh, Can COVID be transmitted through farting? I haven't heard anyone say that. Mostly when people are farting in public, they've got something covering themselves. Right. Um, but given that apparently it is in fecal matter and it can spread through air, I yep. suppose so. Yeah. I mean, yep. let's put it this way. You've set a kind of a low bar for can it be. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, you could probably generate a scenario. On the other hand, it's a, probably a pretty easy scenario to, to prevent from occurring very frequently. Yeah. So. Wear underwear. Yes. Hey guys, what do you think, why do you think anti-Semitism is so persistent? It seems to be rearing its head again at both ends of the political spectrum. Yes, it does. Yep. Yes, it does. You want to? Yeah. Um, I think, uh, well, let's put it this way. We don't really have the bandwidth to do this here, but I have talked elsewhere about the tendency of human populations to seek different kinds of growth, uh, be it through the discovery of new lands, the discovery of technologies that allow you to do more with the lands you already have available to you. And when those things run out, our addiction to growth causes us to identify uh, populations who can't protect, can't defend what they've got, and to make up reasons to attack them. And so basically, anti-Semitism comes down to the fact of Jews being an unusual population that lives at low density in many places. It's a, it's a diaspora population, and not all of it, obviously, but a large fraction of it. And so that large fraction is always vulnerable to the population that isn't Jewish um, turning their, uh, or turning on them. And so anyway, I, I think it, I've, my first evolutionary project actually was a paper arguing that um, anti-Semitism uh, evolves and that it has to be stopped, that it's basically a rationalization for lineage against lineage genocide or warfare, and um, that it's frankly not that hard to understand. Good. We're going to try to be a little speedier here. Speedier. All right. A bunch no more, more adverbs. <laughs> um, what are your thoughts on UBI and the issues it is trying to solve? All there are alternative solutions to those issues. All right. UBI. I am annoyed that this couldn't be discussed 10 years ago. Somehow people had to, lots of us may have been involved in a discussion about 
uh, the fragility of the system and the danger of uh, people's incomes being dependent on certain things. Suddenly UBI became discussable because people uh, who were powerful started talking about it. Um, that's too bad that it required that, but okay. Um, I don't think it's a great solution. I think it's a kludge and it addresses a real problem and it's better than no solution, but I think we have to address the underlying issue that causes us to engage UBI as a solution. Um, and I must say, in the, in the era of COVID-19, I think we are finally, we have a circumstance that is finally forcing us to understand that a system built around economic efficiency is a fragile system. And, you know, so even the Trump administration is talking about uh, a stimulus package in which they're going to infuse cash by delivering it to people who are now suddenly in dire straits. So, you know, um, this has gone from an idea that was undiscussable almost anywhere to an idea that's being discussed, oh, you know, at the at the head of the Republican Party. So um, anyway, let us learn the lesson of this so that we can get to a better discussion next time, which is if UBI is no good, what would be? Good. Uh, Nate writes again to say thanks. That clears up my confusion of models a bit. Good. Welcome. Total U.S. deaths from flu and pneumonia the last bad flu year were about 65,000. Deaths this year since COVID-19 from non-COVID flu and pneumonia effectively zero. I'm not sure that's true, but, but lower than expected. Um, how? Question mark. Oh, well, part of it is that social distancing for COVID-19 works just as effectively and probably more effectively against other viruses that don't have quite as high transmissibility. So we're doing all of the things that we should have been doing all along, much more so, right? Um, but being very careful to wash our hands and think about putting our hands on our faces after we've been touching receipts and, and frequently used surfaces. And the social distancing is far more than any society could put up with for um, years and years and years and years. Um, but maybe we can learn from this, the parts of this that are not that hard to maintain and that would actually solve, uh, save many, many lives and also just many, many uh, sick days. Yep. Good. You're here. All right. I, I'm being told, Zach, you forgot my two super chat questions from this week, beginning of chat, plus one from last week. We're now, thanks to you all, you are very inspiring. Um, I th we are now using a, uh, an app, well, which is doing about it. about ones from before the stream starts, but when it's up. We don't, we don't log those. Ah, okay. I don't know if, if you guys could hear that. Um, if, they if they show up before, what did you say? Before Be we're live. Before, before we're live. live. Um, then they don't get logged by the app. Apologies for that. The character, oh, this is just a description of the character. The character limit is based on how much you pay in Super Chat. $2, 50 characters, $5.50 characters, etc. Okay, thank you. The impact of the virus will more than likely be devastating to the existing economic model. Could this crisis facilitate a radical rethink of the monetary system? I think yes, we, it could. We were just there, yes, yep. and yep. it must. It must. If this isn't the wake-up call, then the wake-up call may be too devastating for us to recover from. Yeah, exactly. Love you too, Brett. Your story on Eric's Chan was... Yeah. Uh, Heather, I was frustrated by the fact that nobody in the public sphere would speak of gametes. You were the first person who ever used that word in public. Um, presumably, we're talking about um, what makes uh, sex... Um, what what the actual most fundamental definition of biological sex is. Uh, and there are lots and lots of um, 
indicators from primary and secondary sex um, characteristics uh, to differences in brain structure to genitals um, to chromosomes in the case of mammals and birds and a few other organisms. But it's gametes that's a distinction. So thank you. Yeah. Gamete size and motility. Yeah. So if you have, um, if you are, and we've, we've said this elsewhere, um, and, and I have too, if you are a biologist in the field and you discover a new species and it somehow you have, you have just, you have no idea what's going on with it. And there's plenty of species out there where you can't tell phenotypically or behaviorally, um, if they're male or female, if you find that one of them, that one individual has gametes that are large ish, um, larger than average cells within that within that organism and sessile don't tend to move, then that's a female you got on your hands. And if you have gametes that are very small, stripped of cytoplasm, and tend to be speedy, at least in some parts of their life cycle, uh, there you have a male. So sperm or pollen um, being the animal and plant versions of the male gametes and eggs being the female. And yeah, it really does, it really does make it simple. Yep. And it is just the, the fundamental underlying what the distinction is. Um, Let's see. Is it possible to detect a less lethal mutation right now and try to purposefully spread that mutation? Um, this is, in effect, uh, hmm, I, don't want to, I don't want to go that far. Uh, I've been toying a lot with the question about sublethal infections here. And one of the questions, which I really, I would love to hear somebody who's well-versed in this, who knows the answer. If it was true that um, infections that do not, that are asymptomatic are not destructive and not frequently transmitted, which is plausible mm -hmm. because it is the destruction that causes symptoms. And it is also, it's the lesions that are spilling virus into your lungs or wherever that are causing the transmission. So if it were true that an asymptomatic case was not destructive to your body or not very destructive to your body and not highly transmissible, then in effect it functions like a vaccine. Mm -hmm. If on the other hand it is true... And the virus wins in a way. It slows down its rate of spread, but it also never ends up in a host that dies. Well, and this is... We've been saying since our first live stream that there tends to be an evolution towards um, a... Lower virulence. A lower virulence, lower damage infection over time mm -hmm. and this would be that accelerating mm -hmm. um so you know the virus doesn't want to make you sick it wants to be passed on to the extent that want is a fair shorthand here and so to be passed on asymptomatically would be fine and anyway there's a question about whether or not the host is the place where this evolution takes place which i think in general that is but there will also be some evolution on the part of the the viruses and to the extent that less lethal ones spread it is uh, likely to our benefit mm -hmm. um, but you know i don't know i don't know where we are and i'd love to know what is true in these asymptomatic cases with yeah. respect to damage and uh, in and further infections we need so much more information than we have yep is hydrochloroquine uh, and I had said hydrochloroquine at one point, and I, and I think it's actually hydroxychloroquine. Um, I think I said hydrochloroquine, and you corrected me. But I had, er in an earlier episode, I think, ah. said hydrochloroquine, so I may have put that in your head. Um, is hydroxychloroquine used to essentially keep the body from burning itself up? It regulates the immune system from swaying out of balance, correct? Question mark. I don't know that I would characterize it that way, but I don't know what exactly it's 
either it, it tends to do in the case of malaria, nor do I know what it is, what we think its mechanism of action against COVID-19 is. Yeah, uh, I think this, I, I want to look this one up okay. and figure out if we can say something concise about it next time. Okay. Thanks, Brett and Heather, for the engaging content. You're making the isolation very stimulating. You're welcome. Do you have plans for an evolutionary lecture series? Maybe. Uh, yeah, I would say we have plans. Probably after our book emerges, I think we will uh, endeavor to, good. to put some flesh on those bones. Yeah, good. What about Wim Hof? Voluntary, uh, quotes, voluntary activation of the sympathetic nervous system and attenuation of the innate immune response in humans as a method to not overreact to virus. Yeah, we got a couple of questions about Wim Hof, maybe the first uh, Q&A that we did. Yep. And uh, neither of us looked into it afterwards. We both had some exposure. No, I looked into it a little, you did. but okay. uh, not enough to say yet. I'm still, yeah. I'm still curious about what he's... Uh, still a possibility. And I think it is what, um, what Jamie, Jamie Wheel let yeah. us in. Um, and, uh, you know, he, 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 Jamie, knows what he's doing. And uh, I, you know, I, I trust that if he thinks that something is valuable, it probably has at least some value to it. Yep. Okay. Um, COVID released on purpose says who thanks. Um, I think what we said yep. last time was that it seemed unlikely this was released on purpose and likely that this was released by accident from a laboratory in Wuhan. Yeah. Uh, but, but it's open. Yeah. We don't know. Does the current working assumption that this is not a bioweapon prevent treatment protocols to be more flexible and limit the research focus? Thank you. Prevent treatment problem. My, my assumption know. from the beginning has yeah. been there comes a point, if this was a weapon, then it would predict certain things about it. Yeah. But until we have evidence that positively suggests that it is actually a weapon, um, that it doesn't add anything, we would do the same thing yeah. um, uh, at an epidemiological level. And so... Uh, uh, again, I want to see the evidence that says it's worth our time to pursue mm -hmm. the this is a bioweapon uh, line of inquiry. And until I see that, my sense is uh, I don't want to get distracted by it. Yeah, we're, we're drowning in a sea of misinformation and underinformation and trying to imagine all the possible ways that, you know, like a switch could have been built into this if it was a bioweapon that could change what it's doing. Like, who knows? It's an infinite. It just opens up. The, uh, the possibilities to infinity and we already don't have enough. We already can't limit the degrees of freedom enough. Right. Yep. Um, watch all your vids. Keep it up if you can. Thank you. Carbon monoxide therapy for COVID patients. I can't find out if anyone has tried this clinically. I was reading on the connection with malaria vaccines, they're not vaccines and stumbled across fascinating, legit research. Uh, so again, if, if you are referring to fascinating, legit research, uh, link it here or find some other way to link it. Um, I don't know. Carbon monoxide therapy seems... Sounds very dangerous. So yeah. my understanding yeah. is that carbon monoxide binds hemoglobin uh, better than oxygen and CO2, thus displacing them. Yeah. So I can easily imagine you making a case of COVID-19 vastly worse. On the other hand... You would need to... I mean, if it was like a way of pulling out the the hemoglobin that's been attacked and then simultaneous with blood transfusion from healthy. Yeah. I, I wouldn't want anybody who didn't know what they were doing, experimenting with yeah. uh, carbon monoxide. Yeah. Why isn't the Dorfman method used anywhere? 
I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. What Why the isn't method the Dorfman is. method used anywhere? Um, What's the Dorfman method? Brett? What is the Dorf? I'm glad you. Well, no chalkboard. Okay, I don't know what the Dorfman method is, so yeah. it doesn't really matter even Apologies. if we had a chalkboard. We don't know what it is. Yeah. Do you have the uncut Weinstein versus Dawkins debate? Pangburn version deceptively edits out all the parts where you school Dawkins. Tons of missing film. I don't think Pangburn did that intentionally. Pangburn was, I believe, being a cheapskate and decided not to actually record the thing properly, and it was being recorded on a handy cam. Now, if I had known that that was the case, I would have had somebody in the audience record it. But I didn't know that that was the case until a fragmented partial mm -hmm. video was released. And so the only hope, I think, is the venue may have recorded it. And I have called them up and tried to find out, and I've gotten nowhere. But um, if the Chicago Theater has a copy, maybe somebody here knows uh, somebody at the Chicago Theater who could dredge it up, I would be forever grateful. Yeah, no, it would be great. We don't have it. And as far as we know, Pangbird doesn't have it either. And no, it doesn't, it doesn't seem like that was intentional on his part, just cheapskatery. Yeah. Please read my two questions at the beginning of this chat. We just don't have them, man, if they started before. Um, regarding athletics and exercise, how does the impact of tearing down muscle apply to cellular senescence? Does this speed up the aging process? Um. Mm. So I, I think I know what this question is about. Yeah. Um, there's long been evidence that athletic activity does not advance senescence, which is at first pass paradoxical because it involves some wear and tear. On the other hand, muscle is an unusual tissue because yeah. it's multinucleate. And so um, the tendency for cellular reproduction to run away in muscle, um, at least striated muscle, is... Uh, greatly reduced, but there may be other pathologies that look like it. So I don't know the answer to the question, but let's just say um, first step would be recognizing that skeletal muscle is distinct in its cellular nature and therefore doesn't fit in the same trade-off matrix or doesn't fit in the same way. All right. Could you talk about Gilbert syndrome, why it was selected for and how it's linked to hemoglobin could relate to COVID-19? Wow. I don't know what Gilbert syndrome is either. I am far better versed in Sullivan syndrome. <laughs> uh, sorry, I don't mean sorry, to be dismissive. Um, yeah, no, we just, we, I mean, there's just two very quickly uh, that we don't, we just don't know, don't know what it is. Um, do antibodies, do antibodies after infection mean immunity? Mm. Okay, uh, so this is written interestingly. I don't know if you can see it. Do antibodies after infection mean immunity over inability to infect others over inability to become reinfected? I'm not... Uh, it's, it, it's slashes, right? Yeah, uh, but so there's also... It's all of these three things. Fancy parentheses. And the three things are... Immunity. Immunity. Inability to infect others and inability to become reinfected. Oh, uh, I, oh, I, oh, okay, I, I got it. So do if, if you have antibodies after infection, does that mean these three things? Does it mean you are immune, that you cannot infect others, and you cannot become reinfected? We think so, yes. Oh, uh, it's not the antibodies. Uh, so, right. If, if you test positive for a serology test uh, slash antibody test, the presence of your antibodies indicate that. Well, the presence of antibodies says you were exposed. Yes. Okay. If exposure... And you had a strong enough immune response to produce antibodies. Yeah. If your 
immune response is the result of having been infected. What we assume, and I think now have pretty good evidence, we don't see a lot of double infections, people who recover and then get sick again. We've seen none. There are a couple of cases that Nicholas Christakis was talking about early on that he thinks were due to um, the problem of false negatives. Right. Um, that people appeared to have been recovered, tested negative, and then tested positive again, but probably just had, had not recovered yet. But the short so, but answer that's not, is... Those aren't serology tests. Those were antigen tests, PCR tests. Yeah. The mechanism is what are called memory cells. And at some point, I think I'm going to put together a lecture on how the immune system works one of the most stunning things I've ever heard, and it's uh, well worth exploring at an evolutionary level. But the thing is, your body fights an infection. At the, as it's fighting, it has effectively an army of uh, cells that are specifically targeted at the infectious agent, and it fights this battle, and eventually, uh, if you don't die of it, it wins. When it wins, that army edits down and you create what are called memory cells. And these memory cells remember the formula for defeating that enemy. And so if you are challenged with another uh, particle or viral particle that's close enough, then the infection never gets far enough for you to detect that you had another encounter. So it's those memory cells that would do it. So in order to get to the three things where um, you can't be infected again, you can't infect others. And what was the third one? And you are um, immune. I, I guess in some ways that's the same. Yes, yeah, the same one thing. One and three are the same thing. So the answer is if the, if the virus doesn't evolve too quickly, then probably having had it once is enough to prevent you from ever getting it again because your memory cells will persist and they will spot it the next time it shows up. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the point that you fully recover, unless it's one of these viruses that retreats to some tissue, which I think we would also know that. Already, Um, you think? Yeah, because I think we'd see some recurrences that wouldn't make sense. Unless it's a longer-term reemergence, the way Y5X malaria tends to deliver for months or years. Yeah, I don't think, but again, that's that's malaria. It's not a a virus. Um, But there are viruses that do it, and I just don't know that we have seen a coronavirus that does this. So in other words, it's resident in a population, but it's not that it hides in a tissue of an individual. So assuming you beat the pathogen, you're free of active particles hiding out in some tissue, and you have memory cells that can spot it, then all three of those conditions will obtain. Which may actually be two conditions. Yeah. A study shows SARS-2 affects ACE2 in testes, decreasing testosterone. With elderly, compromised, unhealthy, and dense groups, thoughts on depopulation? Well, if it's affecting the elderly, it's not going to have much of an effect. Yep. Um, and, you know, it, it, it does, it clearly is affecting or it's killing men and making men at higher rates than it's killing women. <clears throat> and it's making men sicker when they do get sick than it's making women. Um, but um, men aren't the limit on population size. So it's unlikely to affect population. Yep. Clothes get darker when wet because of light, tra- light trapping. CDOI also is dyslexia and evolutionary adaptation. Hmm. All right. Uh, let's talk dyslexia. Here's the thing. Dyslexia is a kind of a garbage category that covers all sorts of things that interfere with what is considered normal reading. In my opinion, it's not really a disability because reading is too new. In other words, to say that somebody like me is, I'm not against being defective, but in this case, 
to say that somebody like me who has challenges when reading is defective pays no heed to the fact that reading at a maximum goes back 8,000 years and wasn't a common feature of a human existence until a few hundred years ago. And so we basically are not evolutionarily prepared for it. Um, so what I would say is it is a novelty problem where reading is novel. You probably have a bell distribution of, uh, you know, how good you are at reading. And uh, there's some arbitrary threshold at which we decide that your reading is compromised enough that you have a uh, um, some kind of a, a failure, a system failure, but that that's arbitrary. And my argument would be everybody's dyslexic when they're tired or their glasses are dirty, you know, or there's loud music playing, right? There's lots of things that can interfere. And some of us are just dyslexic at 12 point font under decent lighting. And so it gets noticed. And being an imperfectly matched for the dominant paradigm allows you to, forces you to do end runs around the dominant paradigm and thus find solutions elsewhere. So as we've talked about, um, elsewhere. Dyslexia is one of these. I don't um, think of myself as doing end runs again around the dominant paradigm. I think of myself as running circles around the dominant paradigm. Yes, you do. Yeah. And yes, you are. <laughs> um, but you know, autism spectrum, colorblindness, left-handedness, there are all sorts of these things where there is a dominant way of being. And if you are somewhere outside of that dominant way of being, you're forced into solution making that looks different and it often ends up resulting in pretty heterodox thinking. Can the earth be considered an organism or superorganism from an evolutionary biological perspective? Nope. It's nope. too flat. Um, can it be considered an organism? No, uh, it's not an organism. Nope. Nor is it a superorganism. Nope. Uh, just like forests don't evolve. The earth doesn't evolve. We have shared fate here on the earth. Um, but, uh, that does not mean that it is an organism or a superorganism. My previous question, and I don't know which that was, was intended to discover whether you believe it is possible that non-COVID flu and pneumonia deaths are being counted as COVID. Oh. Yeah, it's possible. Um, I think it, there's not a ton of it probably going on, but it's certainly possible that some are, although... Well, I think least, it's, it's almost certain that some are by virtue of the fact that um, you have everything through asymptomatic cases of COVID, and so... People come into the hospital. If you test with some positive symptoms, for COVID you're, and you die, it's going it's, to be classified as COVID. Yeah. But we don't know how. We don't know whether it's enough to make a dent in yeah. what we think is going on, or if it's just the rare case. But it's certain not to be zero. Right. Good. Is there a compromise between protection from COVID nineteen while allowing the economy to work? Perhaps continue telecommute, mask wearing, distancing in public places, but let work continue. Yeah. Yes, and um, and, and they're. they're so far, I see almost no economies, no nation states making plans. And um, there is reference to what South Korea did, which was pretty damn effective. Um, but there is such a paucity of testing uh, in, the, in the U.S. and Europe anyway, um, that what are we supposed to do before we know what percentage of the populace has been infected, and therefore what the actual case fatality rate is. Yep. It's high transmissibility. If the case fatality rate is 10 times the flu, but not 100 times the flu, it's a totally different landscape. Have 2% 
of the U.S. population at this point been exposed and infected, or 20% or 50%. We have no idea. We've got so to find out. We've got to find out, and it seems like that just... I hate it when people make these arguments, but it just doesn't seem like it should be as hard as it seems to be. Yes. I would also say we should figure out how to be surgical about what work we stop and what work we allow, yeah. even if that doesn't come into play here, even if we were on the verge of a breakthrough. And I must say, the vaccine, if it comes is going to be a long way off. I've now seen proper analysis that suggests that. But whatever the mechanism that gets us through COVID-19, this is probably not the last time we will face it. And so figuring out how, how work continues mm-hmm. without allowing an epidemic to continue spreading, if it's as hard as it is to figure that out now, it's not going to get easier. And this is, this is our moment because we've already uh, done a lot of the heavy lifting. Yeah. And, uh, I don't know how other places, how other jurisdictions are defining essential services, but um, you know, in in Portland anyway, and I think, and I assume throughout the state of Oregon, uh, hardware stores are open, nurseries are open, landscaping supply places are open, and for us, this means that we can, you know, we're, we're still you know stuck, and there's a tremendous amount of restriction in terms of what we can do, um, but we are able to continue to do a lot of work in and around our house uh, that you know, could have easily been delayed for, you know, months or years. And so, you know, in, in what way is a nursery an essential service? Uh, you, you can't make that argument from the perspective of, you know, I'll die if I don't have this plant. On the other hand, uh, for those people who do spend time outside and plant their own plants, uh, it is potentially a difference between coming out of the psychologically intact and not. Yep. Yep. How many more do we have? We have... Okay, good. Oh, I see closer to 10, but oh, maybe it's not. Let's see. Um, Sorry, I'm trying to figure out where I was. Previously, you spoke of COVID being able to switch its behavior to mutate more easily. What possible mechanism could do this and be accurate? Well, mutation generally isn't accurate. Most of the mutations would cause it to fail, and then those very, very rare mutations that worked would would, um, be selected for and proceed. Yep, a facultative program that allowed uh, greater variation when uh, something told some strain of the virus that it was in a cul-de-sac could be advantageous. Not saying it happens, but it's possible. Absolutely. Can you explain if it is possible for the virus to have spread from a bat biting an animal that was then consumed by humans? We don't know, but it's certainly plausible. Mm, It's pretty unlikely. For one thing, we're talking about a horseshoe bat. But, but again, you know, it's, it might be zero, but it's possibly not zero. Much more likely that a bat, I mean, especially if this thing is depleting oxygen capacity, either by messing up the lungs or mm-hmm. uh, messing with the hemoglobin, a bat's going to suffer from that very quickly because of the way in which oxygen is used. So a sick bat's not going to last very long. Mm-hmm. Um, unless this thing is at a really, really low level, which is also possible. Or somehow it manifests quite differently in different hosts. Yep. And um, different host species. Like, it's always asymptomatic in bats. Right, which, right? which is possible. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would also argue that that's going to come with low transmissibility. You know, if the, yeah. if the bat I is... Mean, biting, yeah, the, the, the biting thing here. Horseshoe bats don't tend to... A horseshoe bat biting a pangolin would be quite a natural history scenario. Right. On the other hand, falling out of the sky because it's sick and couldn't make it back and some animal trundling along and happening onto it is possible on the they other hand trundle, don't they? they do on the other hand the um 
the wet market uh, connection mm -hmm. is looking very tenuous to me. I did. I started to do some looking into the distribution of bats around Wuhan. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm having I'm having trouble buying that this was the wet market. I think it's much more likely the virology lab. All right, interesting. Um, please let us know. By the way. By, thank you. By the way, if you'll consider questions asked before live, live next time. Okay, so we'll try to figure that sure. out. Sure. It's not hard to do. I just didn't. Okay. Didn't do Zach so we says, will do it sure. next time. Yes, we will. Also, watch out for bots. Thank you. I don't know how to pronounce your name, Akko Fur. Um, the Dorfman method is group testing, combining samples to one repeat RP-CPR test. Why isn't it used anywhere? That gets us a little bit closer, but I still don't really know what it's, it's what it's referring to. Sorry. Thank you both for your work. You're welcome. Possible evidence of tissue retreat. Okay, so there's a link here. We'll take a look. Three more questions. Can you guys give us a tour of your house video? <laughs> uh, we don't have a house video. <laughs> and if we did... It would be on VHS and you just like look at it. There you go. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't know. That's kind of a frightening prospect, but um, we'll think about yeah, it. Yeah, maybe we'll give you a tour of three corners. <laughs> three well-chosen <laughs> corners of the house. Um, confusing question from episode four. Could an organism carry a benign virus that kills predators? Any known examples? Presumably virus would function like toxin. Yeah, I don't know yeah, of any I'll, examples of this. I will repeat what I yeah. said last time, which is that the problem with this as an evolutionary mechanism is that the best deal, if you had a virus that predators feared rationally, let's say, you would have to have some sort of an advertisement that you had the virus in order for predators to know to avoid you. But then the best deal is to use the advertisement and not have the virus at all. Yeah. And so until you can get an honest advertisement... Um, of the virus, I don't see how it could evolve. Yeah. Okay, two more questions, and then we are done. Do you believe that Homo sapiens are the final carbon-based life form in our evolutionary lineage? Well, yes, unless we figure some shit out pretty quickly here. Yeah, and we but could declare ourselves, you know, we could declare our children a new... The, the problem is the... Um, the term species has these two different meanings, right? And so... Uh, creatures in a sequence are different. We can declare our kids a new species and um, because it's not the same criteria you would use to separate two bat species, let's say, uh, two co coexisting bat species. Yeah, but he says um, in our evolutionary lineage. He makes a point of not saying species. So, you know, we... Right, but that's my point. Is it, yeah. um, Our lineage is continuing at least another generation. Yeah. So I don't know how to answer the question. Okay. One more question. Is it possible that the functionality of the memory cells is being hijacked by COVID and causing them to initiate hemolysis? That's how that's pronounced, right? Hemolysis. Subsequently releasing ferritin and kicking off an IL-6 cytokine storm. Oh. <laughs> well, the cytokine storm has been observed as a, I don't know what the proper term would be, but a major correlate of the worst cases of COVID-19. Yeah. So... You want I find it. Uh, it's oh boy. I, do I don't. Job. I don't want to yeah. define it because I, I. I will. I will screw it up, and then I will end up having to make another correction <laughs> next time. But um, so cytokine storm. Yes. As for the several links in the chain yeah. you described, don't know enough to say. Um, I will say that there are 
two possibilities. What, what was I reading? It had to do with whether or not COVID-19 was attacking the immune system, which would be a very frightening prospect. That's mm-hmm. what AIDS does, is AIDS uh, or HIV attacks the activated T cells. Um, and then the alternative possibility was... Don't have it. I don't have it. But it, it looked like it was not attacking the immune cells specifically. Mm-hmm. So, you know, who knows? That evidence will develop. Um, again, I've now got a bunch of things I need to look into, but I will see if I can't come up with the, uh, the particular uh, paper I was looking at and, and pass it along next time. Okay. One more question, and then we're out. All right. Has any of you, have any of you spoken with Paul Stamets? Could mushrooms play a role in resolving COVID-19? Um, no one by reputation, but not the man. Yeah. Um, don't know if he's working on something. He's a uh, fellow greener, though. He's a, he is a fellow greener. A fellow greener. Um, so anyway, yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, he seems to find mushrooms have utility in lots of things, so I wouldn't so many be places. altogether shocked. But uh, anyway, Paul, if you got something, contact us. <laughs> That's right. All right. All right. Well, this has been harrowing with all of the technical failures. Thank you for sticking with it. And uh, I think we will try to compile these together in some way. We'll upload a final with all of them together. We will upload a final with all of them together or a pair. In any case, we will edit out the catastrophes. (laughs) Um, We will see you next time. Hopefully, we'll have our uh, technical difficulties ironed out fully by then. We'll be Um, back on Tuesday, 3.30 p.m. Pacific. Okay. Stay safe.